You're listening to GNU World Order, episode 16 of season 13 for 2019-104. This episode, I'm going to take some listener feedback and review the commands, or some more commands from Util Linux. So pretty much the same as previous week, to be honest. But uh, we got to get through these Util Linux commands so we can keep going through the, the other packages of the Slackware install. If you're new to the show then you may or may not know that I've been reviewing all of the... not reviewing... I've been doing an overview of all packages installed on what I'm saying is a typical Linux installation, which isn't exactly true, because Slackware is kind of known for having... for, for installing a lot of stuff. So, many commands that I'm actually going through you probably don't have on your system if you're not running Slackware. But that doesn't mean they're not available, so it's worth worth going over anyway, because a lot of times these things end up on our system one way or the other. Maybe it's a dependency of one package, maybe we we install it because we we need it for for one command that we're copying and pasting in from the internet rather blindly. We don't really know what it does. So this is a good way to get familiar with them. But first we're going to talk about a particularly hot topic, which is from... it's, it's raised by uh, who who emailed, and he says, So, previously, traditionally, Windows users who wanted an application went into the wild, found the application owner's website, known or unknown, trusted or untrusted, and clicked on the link to download said application, and then installed it. This, of course, was to the horror and scorn of the Linux community, who, correctly or not correctly, stated this was entirely unsafe compared to the tried and tested and signed method of getting their own Linux applications from their Linux distribution of choice from the software repository of that distribution. It uh, is this not completely turned on its head, as currently you can go into the wild and download and install a Snap or a Flatpak or an app image for Linux, but in Windows 10 you have to actually click Allow Installations from Sources Other Than Marketplace as the Windows 10 default, denies installation from the wild. Are we, the Linux community, not swapping places with the old Windows systems and inviting trouble from the wild by going outside of the traditional signed software repos from our trusted distros of choice by downloading and installing snaps and flat packs and app images and various internet sites known or unknown, trusted or untrusted. It seems, of course, very handy, but counterintuitive to me in regards to security. I don't buy the commentary of many who state it's fine as the software is free, open source, because I do not believe that casual users review the source code of downloaded snaps or flat packs before installing. And this is from... Uh, oh, username is actually by their deeds, which is on Mastodon, or who is on Mastodon, which. Um, and he says, sorry for the long message, hope it makes sense, I'm currently on the night shift, reality is a little foggy. Yes, I I know the night shift well, actually, I I love the night shift, to be honest, but it, it, does, it does mess with the rest of your life, because no one else has the night shift, and so you're the only one on the night shift. So if you want to see the people in your real life, then that that kind of that throws everything a little bit askew. But anyway, I digress. Um, I just I miss the night shift to be honest. But um, and I guess I could technically do the night shift again. So maybe what I'm saying is that I miss the uh, the the ability to do the night shift without missing out on the rest of life. So anyway, again digressing. That's not the point of the email. The point of the email is 
sort of bringing into to question the the model proposed by Flatpak and Snaps and and so on. It's also a question of trusting and untrusting and signing and not signing. And to that end, I'm going to break it down into some sub-questions or some sub-statements, maybe, because they're not necessarily questions. I I guess it's framed as a a question. But anyway, let's, let's talk about trust first. So trust is something that I am actually quite, quite interested in, because trust, especially online, is a big deal. Well, actually, why did I say especially online? It's a big deal everywhere. I mean, trust trusting people is something that happens all throughout life. And while there's some accountability in real meat space as to who you trust and, and when someone betrays your trust, what your recourse is against against that betrayal, and, and certainly people in meat space tend to value, uh, many people in meat space tend to value trust more in meat space than online because because they they are physically located where they are physically located and if they lose trust of people then their interactions are severely limited so people tend to try to appear and be trustworthy in real life because that 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 controls or or it influences what they can do in real life just what people will do for them and what they can do in the real world without being um, shunned or harassed or or just forbidden from the premises entirely sometimes. So that tends to be easier in the real world. At least that's what we all like to think and and we tell ourselves. And I think the majority of the time that is that is the case. Now online, of course, famously, there's a lot more flexibility there. You can be one person one day and then another person another day, and and very few people put those two those two identities together usually. Uh, and sometimes if if you're really being intentional about it, it it's actually quite difficult to marry those things together. So trustworthy, tr- trustworthiness online tends to be a little bit hazier. And when you are a developer and you're distributing software, then there there needs to be some some trust there, but how do we know who this person distributing the software is in the first place? And could that person be distributing something very trustworthy? as one identity and something very untrustworthy as another. Yeah, yeah, you, it's, that is the case, yes. So there's this idea of, well, let's have digital signatures on things. And these digital signatures will, will guarantee that the, same, that, that the same physical entity with access to the unlocking of this digital key, we can at least be sure that that person is the same person who is releasing this software. And so if if this digital signature appears on this trustworthy, very good software, and it also appears on this software that is very, very poor and, and not trustworthy, then we can then assume that that digital signature is no longer a trustworthy signature, because while it does appear on this good piece of software, it also appears on this one with really bad code in it that's really dangerous to run. And so the same physical entity is apparently okaying both of these products. And and for that reason, we're now going to mis we're not going to trust, we're going to distrust this anything with this digital signature because it has been tainted by by poor quality code. Or whatever the scenario might be. 
So, first and foremost, you can sign flat packs and you can assert ownership of a snap package. I, I haven't built a snap package yet. It is on my list of things to do and to really dig into, but it, it has not happened yet. I'm keen to try because I have discovered recently that Flatpak really doesn't work that well on as as a terminal command. Uh, I complained about it in the in the episode where I was talking about how to how how when running the GIMP Flatpak you had to do like Flatpak run org.gimp.gimp or something like like that, and and that's a bother that that does not that that doesn't sit well with me. Snap, however, is completely transparent. So you know, if you want to run something, a, a snap package, you just type in the command just as if though you, just as normal. Now you have to add the snap directory to your path, so there's a step in there to, to sort of make it smooth, but it's pretty simple. So it's a one-time thing. Could be scripted, could be integrated into an install of snap itself, probably. But I'm, I'm eager to, to build a snap, but I, I haven't yet. But I do know that there is a, a process, and you can read about it on docs.ubuntu.com slash core slash en slash reference slash assertions. There's a process that, that has been set up and created for, for people uh, to register as a Snap developer and to submit a signed file that bears you know, a verifiable digital signature from them, thereby assuring people that, yes, this snap is owned by this person. And whether or not this person is inherently trustworthy, that's a completely different question. But at least we know that it's the same person. And if you find a snap from that person that does something deceitful or outright evil, then you should no longer trust any snap with this digital signature. And the same goes for Flatpak. The Flatpak has a when you, when you're building the 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 Flatpak itself, when you issue that command to build the Flatpak, you can add a dash dash sign, I think, or or yeah, I think it's just dash dash sign, and it looks into. I'm thinking of building an RPM. I just realized. Either way, there's a command when you're building Flatpak, you can sign it with a, a GPG key. So it's. It's really a simple process, and it's exactly the same, actually, as building, you know, an RPM, really. RPM build dash dash sign, it's basically the same thing as doing a flat pack dash dash sign, or, or whatever the exact command, it, command is, or, or option. So, the trusted versus untrusted question, I don't even know if I feel like it applies, because there is that mechanism. To, to track the owner of a package. But I sense that the, com- that the, the concern is not really about whether there's a mechanism by which to trust a distributor of a, of a software application. Because I think the, the assumption here, again, is that a normal user, and I still don't know what these, where these normal users exist, but, but I still... I find it comforting, as I guess we all do, to believe that they are around. And these normal users are usually users who know who know less than we do and who are interested in computers less than we are. So we're assuming that these normal users will not look to see if a package is particularly trusted or not. 
and that's a fair assumption. So the the thing that we inherit from a Linux distribution with a software repository is that we can point a normal user to that repository and say, everything in that repository is safe. Now, can we promise them that? No, we can't. But what we're doing is we're relying on this idea that a lot of people are using that repository. Those packages are signed by somebody. And if we find a package that is doing something suspect or something that we do not like, then we can take note of that digital signature associated with that package and we can make a complaint. We can lodge a complaint against that distributor. And then that distributor is no longer trusted or that distributor says, oh my gosh, that slipped by me. I will fix it immediately. They fix it and the, the, the memory of that is sort of logged in the community. But if it never happens again, then we all assume, well, it just got by that person, that, that package maintainer, not a big deal. It's an honest mistake. And that happens. You, you don't really get that if, if you have a bunch of packages all over the internet. Now, here's the thing, though. I, I don't think that that's actually the intended model of Flatpak or Snap, for that matter. The intent with those are to build hubs. And, and there is a flathub.org, and there is a snapcraft.io to which you are intended to, to go for your flat packs or your snaps. So the intent very much is to form a, a singular community around these packages so that all these packages are under the watchful eye of a whole community. So... I don't think that it's accurate to say that Linux users are, are meant to go out to random websites and download uh, random applications and, and run them blindly. I, I think that the intent, and certainly the implementation that I've seen so far, is that these flat packs and snaps are integrated into package management systems that come on your distribution of choice. And I, I want to talk about that in a future episode, and I will talk about that in a future episode. So I, I don't want to get into it too much right now, but but the 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 on Slackware certainly flat packs in my experience have been yeah from more or less all over. And when I say more or less, I really mean more or less, because really more often than not, I go to flathub.org and I browse through the applications available on the web version of this thing, including GIMP. There's GIMP right there on the front page. And I can click Install, and on, on, on Slackware, it offers to save the file for me. That's, that's my option. Now, on a different operating system that has an integrated package management graphical interface that would pop up in, in Firefox, Firefox would know to call out to uh, PackageKit and package kit would would detect that there's a flat flat pack ref or whatever they're called yeah flat pack ref and and it would integrate it you know it would, would pop up into the GUI and you would be able to pa- to install it from your package manager and and it all comes from flathub.org and the same goes with snapcraft.io so the fact that you can install these applications from random places online doesn't necessarily well, heck doesn't mean doesn't mean that there's any intent that that's that that's what you're supposed to be doing. It, it simply means that that's something that you can do if if you have to or if you want to. But this this opens up yet another aspect of all of this, and that that's 
these, this idea that that the repositories of a distribution are truly the only place that people get their applications in the first place. And I don't think that's I don't think that's accurate. Even normal users, maybe in fact, you know what? Especially normal users do not resort only to their software repository. And I challenge anyone who says otherwise. Uh, that's not to say that I'm completely right. I, I'm actually challenging you. If you say otherwise, please let me know. If you find a normal user who restricts their, their choices only to a software repository provided by their distribution, let me know. I'd love to meet them. Because in my experience, every normal user out there has had to resort to going to some website for something. It's become a lot better now that, for instance, other other institutions have started developing their own app stores, for lack of a better term. For instance, Steam. Steam now provides a heck of a lot of games, and a lot of them run on Linux, and some of them don't, and either way, you can install them from the Steam interface. So the result is that people go to fewer random websites to find their games, because now they have Steam, and they can get all the games from one place. And we're assuming that because there's a bunch of eyes on that interface, that those are pretty trustworthy uh, applications to install. And then there's other places like itch, itch.io. And if you go to itch.io, you can install an application from itch.io, and you're now just downloading stuff again from itch.io, and, and it's from a centralized place, and we're assuming that a lot of eyeballs are on that, and so we're assuming that an application that is untrustworthy will be found by a community of people before it reaches the normal user who wouldn't think to check in the first place. And it would get removed, and therefore we're all protected. So that's kind of the that that's that's the direction that it is moving in. But there are still there are two at least two times where that's not holding true. One is when some developer, when some small-time developer, is keyed in to the whole Linux scene and says, "You know what? I should get my application." integrated into one of those fancy distribution repositories. And so they approach the distribution repository and they say, here's an application, I, here's, the, here's the, the RPM, here's the .deb, here's everything that you need, I'd like to have this application in your repository. And they either get no response or they get a response of, well, you're not a, an approved packager, so this isn't going to happen but maybe one of our packagers would volunteer to take your application on to maintain that package themselves, because they are a verified packager. And then that bug sits there for a year, two years, three years. It's completely ignored, and the application doesn't make it into the repository. Does it ever happen? Yeah, it happens. That sort of thing does happen. So sometimes the official repository doesn't have an application in it. And so... In order to go install that, you have to go directly to the site. Other times, there's a developer who just isn't keyed in to the whole Linux thing, and they don't even bother approaching Linux, and they, they maybe they build some stuff, maybe they put out a tarball that they know will run on Linux, but they have no interest in getting involved in the Linux community, in in that they don't know which distribution to approach in the first place because there are apparently 666 of them. And so their application exists. The code is there. You can install it. 
but there it's nowhere near any repository. And then I guess the third one that I didn't even think of is that your default repository simply doesn't have the version of the software that you want. And so you go to the random website and you download the code yourself and you compile it or you do whatever you do and you install it. And you didn't check the code, you didn't verify it at all, it's just code that you installed. So there are lots of different opportunities for people to go outside of their trusted source for software. And I, I don't think that it's ever been true that Linux users are, are protected and safe from the wide world because we have repositories. I think that repositories make it easier to install stuff because that way you don't have to go out and build the code yourself, which, which can be difficult. I, I still, I don't think to this day, I've compiled GIMP myself. And if anything, I think that the distribution repositories, the individual distribution repositories, has has weakened Linux distribution because people because there are several different repositories. So there's a, a huge doubling up on, on, of effort here. We've got people maintaining the same package, different people maintaining the same package for Debian, for Ubuntu, maybe for Fedora, for Arch, for Slackware for lots of different repositories. So we've got duplication of effort. We also have an obelisk, a, th a multi-tindrilled obelisk that greets a vendor when they come to Linux to say, hey, I've got some code that'll run on your OS. Where where should I put it? Should I just put it, should I, who, who wants, I'll just put it here and anyone who wants it can just grab it. See you later. That's silly. That's ridiculous. If there's a if there's a place like flathub.org, and a vendor goes to Linux and is greeted by flathub.org and says, "Okay, I've got this thing. I've digitally signed it. Here it is." They're done. That's it. They're done. The software has been delivered. It has been packaged, and it is available to all of the distributions. Thank you very much for that very very thought provoking email, otherwise known as by their deeds on Mastodon. It was very, very thought-provoking. I certainly appreciated it, and I hope that my analysis of the situation has angered and inspired people to take action to make Linux distribution easier for everyone. And now it's time for coffee. I hope you've got coffee because you're going to need it. We have a lot of util Linux to get through. But before we do that, I should mention that Ken Fallon emailed me recently. Ken Fallon from Hacker Public Radio, in case you don't know. If you don't listen to Hacker Public Radio, you should go listen to it, and you should submit a show. It's a great way to get into podcasting with uh, an existing RSS feed that you don't have to maintain, uh, an existing audience that you can talk to. It's a really, really good place, hackerpublicradio.org. But anyway... Ken Fallon, one of the volunteers at HackerPublicRadio.org, emailed me and asked what I used for the coffee music that I play. And I, I have to admit, I don't exactly know what that music is. It is something that I found on Archive.org back when I started this show, which was, what, 2008? 2008? Is that what we say around here? I think it's 2008. Let's go with 8. 
and and I don't remember like I didn't back then I didn't think to keep track of URLs or or anything like that. I just downloaded the file. It was on archive.org. That seemed exciting. It was free. It was apparently public domain, and so I've been using it ever since. It it was um I think a tune for like a um like a movie theater intermission uh sequence. So when when a movie would break between maybe maybe between movies, maybe it was one of those double feature type things, or maybe there was an intermission, but there was this music and you were supposed to get up and go get a hot dog and nachos and a soft drink and that sort of thing. So I would not get a hot dog because I'm vegetarian and I would love nachos if it had real cheese on it. I don't really like that fake cheese that we use in America. Americans know what I'm talking about. So here's Linux, and we have we have progressed through all of the bin, everything in bin. We have progressed through about, I don't know, five or six things in sbin. The next thing in sbin is a command called chcpu. And chcpu, that's chcpu, it's in sbin. It's a command that you might think would would mean change cpu, but apparently no, that's not what it means. It it I don't know what it means. It doesn't really make sense to be honest. But what the command does, according to man cpu, is configure CPUs. So configure you know what it might mean? Because the author of the name of the application is listed as Heiko, H E I K O. So maybe it means configure Heiko CPU. Or his his full name is Heiko Karstens. So maybe it's Karstens Heiko. CPU. I don't know. It's modifying the state of CPUs. This is particularly useful, I think. I mean, certainly, according to the man page, it, it suggests that it's particularly useful in, in the cases of virtualization. I, I don't think you would probably use this on, on bare metal. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that you would disable a CPU on your computer, for instance, like your hardware computer. Maybe you would, I don't know. But I think the intent here, and, and the way that the man page is written, it seems to support that, is that it, maybe you're running this this Linux system in a, a virtual, uh, like a in a virtual a virtual environment, and and so you you tell your your hypervisor the thing that is creating the virtual environment to throw another CPU at VM zero zero three. And then you go into VM003, and you tell VM003 to enable the new CPU that you've just added to actually use it on the system. You can do a rescan as well, just CPU-rescan, that will cause the Linux kernel to recognize a new CPU that has been made available to it. So again, I don't know of a hardware platform where you could open it up pop in a new CPU, and then go to your terminal and tell your computer, hey, rescan for CPUs and, and bring that new one that I just installed live while the system is running. Make that available. I don't know of anything like that. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm not saying it's never existed. I'm just saying I don't know of that platform, and I certainly don't have access to it. So no, I've never used just CPU, and I don't anticipate using it any time soon necessarily that said you never know like if i'm if i'm virtualizing a system i, I might actually i mean it's, it's not uncommon to throw 
new virtual hardware at a virtual system. That's something you can do, and it's one of the beauties of running something as a virtual machine. You can just add and take away hardware without rebooting at all. Okay, so next up is sbin control-alt-delete, and that sets the function of the control-alt-delete combination. I know that control-alt-delete is really, really famous, but I have to be completely honest, I don't think I've ever used that key combination. I don't, I am not familiar with it. I don't believe I've ever used it. I could be wrong. Maybe I'm just forgetting conveniently my old, old, old days of computer life before I cared about computers, in other words. I, I do remember on, on old, 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 old Apple systems, there was a similar key keyboard uh, shortcut or, or key command. It was Apple, maybe Apple Control Delete, maybe? So maybe in that, maybe I did, or I guess it would have been, yeah, it would have been Delete. So Apple Control Delete, maybe. And so, so maybe I did use it in some form a long, long time ago. But it is not something that I am that I have any real familiarity with. So anyway, I guess it says that um, in Linux kernel sys.c code, it's clear that there are two supported functions that Control Alt Delete can perform. There's a hard reset, which immediately reboots the computer without calling sync, and a soft reset, which sends the sig int, the interrupt signal, to the init process, which is obviously always the process with PID1. That's what this does. Apparently, it says Control-Alt-Delete is usually used in the etcrc.local file, and the way that you use it is you do alt, or rather, sbin slash C-T-R-L-A-L-T-D-E-L space, and then you tell it either hard or soft. So if you want it to perform a hard reset, then type in hard, and then if you want to do a soft reset, soft. So I've just typed that, and it says you have to be root to do this. So I'll go back in, and as root now, I'll do sbin... Actually, I don't even have to do sbin now, because uh, root user does have sbin in there, in the path. Control alt uh, delete. Now it doesn't apparently seem to doesn't seem to say what it's set to currently. So I'm just going to do Control Alt Delete and then Soft, and it returns nothing. So I'm assuming that 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 has been set, and that's that application. On to the next one. Next up is FDisk. FDisk is a useful tool. You've probably used it. Chances chances are are high that you've used it, although. To be fair, it, it's not a given, because there are lots of Linux installers these days that don't at all require you to use FDisk, or CFDisk for that matter. They do it all sort of in a GUI for you, or they, they just let you hit the automatic button, which is even nicer. A little bit more dangerous, possibly, because sometimes the automatic result is not what you expected it to be. But um, certainly at one point in time, it was, I, from what I understand, pretty common for you to, you, you would be installing Linux and you were expected to prepare your your disk yourself manually with FDisk or CFDisk, which I talked about, I think, in the previous episode, or alternately parted, GNU parted, which is actually, I think, overall, I think parted is my preferred, preferred command. But uh, FDisk is certainly useful, and since I'm root right now, nothing could possibly go wrong. So I'll issue fdisk slash dev slash sda, and that takes me into an interactive prompt, sort of the the application itself, really. I mean, it's it, I'm now at an fdisk prompt, 
and I can hit M, it says, for help. M being, I, I assume, manual. And it tells me that there are certain things that I can do, like I can delete a partition. I will not be doing that. I can uh, hit capital F to list free unpartitioned space. And again, that's on this disk that I've pointed FDisk at, which is uh, dev SDA for this, for this demonstration. I could do a P for print the partition table. And that shows me that on dev slash SDA, I have two partitions, SDA1 and SDA2. SDA1 starts at 58116587522 and ends at 58605322223. Sectors that that contains is, I don't know, 448,873,472, rendering this uh, to be the size uh, 23 gigabytes, and that, believe it or not, is my Linux swap partition. Why did I give myself 23 gigs of Linux swap? Well, it's because I have 24 gigs of RAM in this machine, and I thought, well, if I ever need to hibernate this thing, I want to make sure there's plenty of room where where stuff can be stored. Uh, on dev SDA2, which starts at 2048 and then ends at f a later number with lots of sectors in it is 2.7 terabytes and that's the Linux file system. So that's dev SDA. So I'm going to quit out of that before I do something horrible like overwrite my partitions and stuff. Um, but as it turns out if you do a man f disk there there is a lot more than I realized uh, that you can do on without entering that interactive mode. Now I could be mistaken but I, I feel like Parted offers a heck of a lot more than, than what FDisk offers the ability to do. Again, I could be wrong. Maybe I'm just missing the relevant part of the manual. But it, it doesn't seem like there's a, a heck of a lot that you can do here. Um, for instance, with GNU Parted, you can do everything outside of the interactive prompt. You don't ever have to go into GNU Parted's interactive mode. You can issue commands, so you can script it, to partition a disk, write a file system to the disk, list the, the size of the disk, all, 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 all kinds of things. Whereas for FDisk, as far as I can tell, you can do like FDisk dash dash list, and then let's do dev slash SDA, and we'll just keep it there. And, and it outputs the same thing that we got from the interactive mode, but obviously I, I haven't. My, my prompt hasn't been taken over by anything. And uh, I can apparently also get the byte size of of the disk with git sz, which really is, it's a deprecated option and you should use block dev. That's what it says right there. So block dev we talked about, I'm pretty sure again in the previous episode, we were talking about block dev where you can analyze the, the block devices attached to your system. Dash dash output specifies which output columns to to print dash dash compatibility don't really care dash dash protect sector size um, type okay so we can get the disk labels enable support only for disk labels of a specified type disable support for all other types dash dash units control what what units to use when things are being listed cylinders heads sectors and version that's really about it there's actually a lot more to the man page, but a lot of it is just explanatory text talking about sort of what what 
what partitions are and, and what kind of partition labels are available and and what's compatible with DOS and not compatible with DOS and all this other stuff that that honestly I I believe that this is probably why I didn't like FDisk from the very beginning and that is that it it approaches this process very much and I'm not saying others don't I'm just saying that this this definitely approaches the process assuming that you already know everything that you need to know about disks and that's kind of a weird place to start from it's fair it's a fair place to start from i'm digging around for a demo disk that i can use to uh destroy thereby going through the process of an f disk um, workflow but uh, i mean it's fair it's it's totally fair to say okay well if you're reading this man page then i'm going to assume that you know everything that you need to know about 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 this process about a disk drive you should know you should know these things and if you don't know then then that's you know you're not ready for this man page you should go and and read something else i mean at some point a, a documentation thing has to it does have to assume that you know a base level of knowledge but i i, I imagine that if i ever looked at fdisk the fdisk man page or the the interactive help system i i can just imagine that that wouldn't have made any sense to me because i mean it barely makes sense to me now honestly I'm just not that low-level hardware person. So I've just inserted a, a thumb drive, a blank thumb drive, into my computer. I'm actually not, I'm not seeing it, so maybe it's, a, maybe it's a relatively dead one. Let me try that again. Okay, inserted it again, and that time it came, it came, into, uh, came into being. So that's a 3.8 gigabyte drive, and it has a fancy name, so it almost feels like there's something on there that I actually needed. Nope, doesn't look like it. It's just a bunch of old stuff that I had to print at one point, but that is all over now, so I can get rid of this one. Okay, cool. Just wanted to make sure. Um, so it's a small little drive. It's 3.8 gigabytes, and it's at slash dev slash sdg. So let's just do this really quick. So I'm going to go into the fdisk... Um, uh, interactive prompt by issuing fdisk slash dev slash s dg. I'm going to do m for manual so that I can get a list of all my little menu choices and then I'll do a let's do a p for print first and there's actually nothing on here there's no there's no partition now there's data on here but there's no partition and for whatever reason and I think it the I think the reason is because I needed it to, to be compatible with a uh, one of those printers, like at a print shop, where you just go up to the printer and you pop your um, your drive in. So that's that's what this was um, meant for, and that's why there's no partition on here. It's just a, a fat file system on a drive, 3.8 gigabytes. So truly, truly disposable. So the there's no partition to delete. Uh, if I do a capital F to view the free space, it does say that there. There, it looks like there is some free space, and it um, it says that it. I, I don't I, I don't see how that's possible, but it says the free space starts at two, 2048, goes to 7833599, containing 7831552 sectors, and the size is 3.8 gigabytes. So I think what that's really telling me is that the unpartitioned space on this drive is that big. Yeah, that is exactly what it's telling me. So that's interesting. I mean, that's something to be aware of, I guess, is that there could be a file system on a drive 
without there being a partition on that drive. Just because there's no partition doesn't mean that there's no data. I think we will create a partition, which is add a new partition, which is the N, as in new. So I'm going to hit N, and it asks me, do I want this partition to be a primary or an extended? So I'm going to go primary, because there's no reason to do an extended yet. Primary number, default 1, so we'll accept the 1. First sector is 2048 by default. Sounds good to me. Uh, last sector is the default. The default is the, the the last detected sector. So that's actually quite useful. In Parted, you can do that with um, 100% if you want to just take up the whole drive. But this actually sort of detects the end for you and says, well, how about this one as your default? That's nice. And you can also apparently talk here in kilobytes, megabytes, gigabytes, terabytes, petabytes. So actually I could I could default to my old standard nomenclature. But anyway, I'm taking the default. And it says that it has created a new partition, one, of type Linux, and the size is 3.8 gigabytes. So I'm going to do P for print again. And sure enough, it, it claims now that there's a dev SDG1 starting at 2048, going to the end, containing some number of sectors, 3.8. ID is 83, and the type is Linux. So that sounds pretty good to me. Um, I think that's really about all we need. So I'll, I'll do an M again to just make sure that I'm not forgetting anything. And it doesn't look like I am. It looks like everything here is just... Uh, there's extra functionality for experts only. Let's... X. So this added new options if I hit X and then hit M again for the help for expert commands. There is a DOS MBR, move beginning of data in a partition, or I, change the disk identifier. Geometry, I can change numbers of cylinders and heads and sectors or tracks. Don't want to mess with that. And then the generic stuff again, I can delete or I can print the raw data of the first sector. I can print the raw data of the disk label. I can fix the partition order. I can verify the partition table or print the partition table. Let's print the raw data of the first sector. That's lowercase d as in delta. It gives me a sort of a hex dump of a bunch of information that would probably mean a substantial amount to me if I knew the MBR, some of the disk flags by heart, which I do not. Now for compatibility, I guess I would probably be wise to just keep this as it is, which is an MBR. So in fact, I'll do that right now. So first I'll do W to write. And then, of course, now now I have a disk with a partition that that's really void of anything useful. So I need to probably make a make a file system on the drive. So we'll do an mkfs.ext2 just to be to be silly. I mean, really, in real life, I would use ext4, but this is a little thumb drive. Who cares? Dash l, and we'll call it um, fdisk test dev sdg1. Of course, because because the the file system wants a partition and hit return, it writes some information to this drive, and it has finished, and it pops up in my device notifier on KDE. I can open it, and it's an empty little drive with nothing there but the lost and found folder. Cool. That's great. So if I go to fdisk now, well, actually, I'm going to umount dev sdg1, because I just actually mounted it. So I'm going to go to fdisk again, and this time I'm going to point it well, not this time, but I'm going to again, slash dev slash sdg, and I'll print, of course, and there is a 
uh, partition there. Okay, great. So what we're going to do here is we're going to, instead of relying on the old default MBR stuff, which is the, what is it, master boot record or whatever, we're going to make this a GPT, a, a GPT drive. That's a, what, a GUID partition table or something like that. And we're going to create that such that, okay, so it says G for, for created a new GPT disk label. And it gives me this long UUID looking identifier GUID uh, that, that, that identifies this, this drive. And if I, if I do a print now, I've, I've just blown away everything I just did because I've, I've re, I've, I've created a new, essentially a header for the drive. That's what a, a disk label, well, I think a disk label is the generic term for this, this concept of we need to put information at the head of this drive so we all know what to expect. On, on window, Windows PCs, I guess, or, or in, within the PC world, there was this term called the MBR, the master boot record, and that is traditionally what hard drives have used for a long time. But GPT came along because of limitations within MBR, and, and really technically it's a much better, much better way of, of, of defining drives. So when I can use GPT, I do. You, you cannot always assume that, that that's something that you can do because some, some ancient things or, or some modern things that use ancient formats just won't recognize the GPT drives and you have to, it wants an MBR in order to mount things correctly. We're getting there, I think, as a society. So I've got now a GPT disk label, meaning that, okay, this drive is is ready to accept GPT partition types. So now if I hit in again, and it says partition number 1 through 128. It's a little bit, a little bit more than 1 through 4, if you'll recall the default by the from the, the previous one. Default is 1, so I'll, I'll go with that. First sector, default 2048, that's correct. Last one is is the last known sector, which is, I think, a little bit different. It looks a little bit different, but that might be because of the difference in size of the GPT, maybe? I don't know. I'll hit return on that one. Created a new partition 1 of type Linux file system of the size 3.8. So I think I'm good to go there. I'll write. I will, and it says, okay, um, partition table has been altered, calling IO... CTL to reread partition table syncing disks and now if I well if I if I go to my device notifier the the thing still is there but I, I feel like that's not really there but maybe the kernel is aware of it I don't know um, anyway we're gonna do an MKFS ext let's do an ext4 this time and we'll do dash dash help because I don't really remember all of the things that I need to know yes I do actually dash capital L for the volume name. So I'm going to call this fdisk gpt test and give it the path of sdg uh, of slash dev slash sdg1 and it warns me that there's a file system I accept and it writes all the data to the drive and now it pops back up into my device notifier. I'm mounting it and again it's empty except for that lost and found but it's got the new name fdisk gpt test and it looks like everything went well. So that's fdisk for you really. I would love to compare that to GNU parted sort of in context, but if I do that now, I know that by the time we get to GNU Parted, I'll forget that I did that, and, and wouldn't that be silly? I guess I could really quick, really quick, uh, compare it to CFDisk. So I'm going to launch CFDisk slash dev slash SDA, no, I'm not, SDG, 
And there's dev, yep, okay, so 3.8 gigabytes, it kind of confirms that I'm sort of at the right place. It gives me the GPT identifier up at the top, and uh, it, it gives me sort of an overview of this disk, as you would expect in something like, I don't know if you've ever used Gparted, this is kind of like the curses version of that, except it's not. It's really the curses version of FDisk, I guess. And there's a menu down at the bottom, so I can delete, which I will do right after I unmount the thing. There we go. I've unmounted it now, so now I'm going to... Can I... Do I still have access to it? I should. Let's quit and do that again. Cannot find that medium, because I told Disk Notifier to get rid of it. So, unattaching, reattaching to my computer. There we go. CF disks uh, dev slash sdg1, so I can delete, so I'll do that first, and it deletes it. Now, it hasn't actually deleted it. I could quit without saving, and nothing has happened. So I've deleted it, and then I could say, well, give me a new partition, and it says partition size, and the default is the full, for the full thing, so 3.8 gigabytes. Sounds good to me. The type, I can choose the type of partition that I want to create, which in this case is a Linux file system. Help, I can get help. I don't need help right now, so I'll skip that. And then write. I can write the partition table to the disk. And if you do that, it would write the, the partition table to the disk. So those are the two workflows. CF disk, F disk, pretty similar. F disk is a little bit more um, flexible, I would say. Although if I'd read the help for CF disk, maybe there are some commands in there that I didn't, that I've never seen before. I don't know. But there you go. That's That's what they are. So let's go on to the next one which is FindFS, which finds a file system by label or by UUID. So, for instance, we could do FindFS and then capital... The, the format's a little bit odd. It's, it's capital L-A-B-E-L, so all capital label, and then equals, and then I know that the one that I just created is called FDisk uh, GPT Test... And then I'll hit return, and it returns slash dev slash sdg1, which we happen to know is correct because we just did that. So there you go, that's findfs. And you can do that with a couple of different properties. I, I don't know why it uses the the label equals format, but that's what you do. There's no, there aren't really any options to the command. You just, I mean, there are, unless these, I guess they're technically options, but it, yeah, the format's very strange, very unexpected. But anyway, yeah, findfs, you can use label equals, and then the label name, or uuid equals, and then the uuid, or the part uuid, and then the, the uuid for the partition itself. That's only going to work on a GUID uh, GPT table. It won't work on something like MBR, because the partition identifier needs to be supported. It needs to be a thing. Or part label, which again is another GPT uh, thing. You can't do that on w without GPT. And and you get back, like, you know, where that thing is located. It, it's pretty neat, pretty cool. I don't have a use for it today, like right now, but it, that's a that, that seems pretty handy to me. Okay, well, the next one is FSCK in, in, in the list, FSCK. That's a pretty famous command. A lot of people, I feel like a lot of people know about it, or at least have, have seen it or heard about it. It is simply file system check. That's FSCK, file system, and then check, C, C, and K, check. And it repairs, in theory, it can repair a file system. Uh, from the man page, it says, FSCK is used to check and optionally repair one or more Linux file systems. File sys, I don't know why they chose to abbreviate that, can be a device name, sl like slash dev 
sda1 or a mount point like slash or slash user or slash home whatever or an x ext2 or uuid specifier so like a uuid or label equals root and so on so there's a lot of different ways to 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 point at your target the exit code returned by fsck is the sum of the following conditions zero is no errors one is a one is file system errors corrected two is system should be rebooted four is file system errors left uncorrected eight operational error, 16, usage or syntax error, 32, checking canceled by user request, and then 128, shared library um, uh, error. So FSCK is um, actually just a front end for all the different kinds of file system checkers, which are labeled as FSCK dots and then the name of the file system. So if, if I leave the man page for a moment, if I do, let's just do FSCK and then tab a couple of times. Oh, no, that doesn't work, actually. Nope, that's useless. All right, I need to be root to do that. So I'll become root. No, I won't. Try it again. Now I will do FSCK dot and then tab. There we go. That's a little bit better. So there's FSCK dot butterfs. There's cramfs, x234, x4dev. Fat HFS, JFS, Minix, MSDOS, RiserFS, VFAT, XFS, and ZFS. Now, the thing that is missing here, you may or may not have noticed, is UDF, which is the universal disk format, which is one of my favorite disk formats because it, well, it was anyway, it used to be universal. You could plug it into any computer, Windows or Mac or Linux, and it would just read the disk, read and write the disk. It was great because it was designed for Blu-ray or something like that. It was a great disk format, but the, the thing that drove me away from it recently is that, well, Mac dropped support for it, so that there goes the universal aspect of it. And then also there's no FSCK for it, which has always made me feel a little bit nervous. Apparently there is from Solaris or something, but but it's it's... Yeah, it's not widely available. So I don't, and I don't even know how well it worked. So, yeah, kind of, kind of useless. So FSCK uh, can fix or can check for errors and then potentially fix file systems. And if it is a journaled file system, this often means that the journal is going to be played back and applied to the file system, and that's really, really handy. And it's something that I've seen in practice on a couple of different occasions, really. Um, certainly with JFS, if, if you just pull out the drive and then plug it back in uh, and then do an FSCK, it, it sort of it narrates for you. It says, hey, I'm replaying the journal right now. And it kind of shows you a little status bar and everything. So that's the one that I'm kind of very, very used to. But it happens on other, on other systems as well, on other file systems. So you can recover information that maybe didn't get applied to the file system that way. There may be other ways to do that, but I, I just happen to know that FS, FSCK tends to make that part of its part of the thing that it does. Now, I, I can't really do a good demo of, S, uh, of FSCK. I don't feel that I can anyway, because I don't have, I don't have a conveniently broken file system just lying around. So... I can talk about it, and I guess I can, I could go, let's, so we just made this one disk, uh, if, if you'll recall, fdisk gpt test, 
And I guess I'll do, what is it, a blkid block id slash dev slash sdg. No, that's not it. Uh, block id slash dev slash sdg1. There we go. Uh, so that's a label, and that's the UI. There it is. Type, ext4. So we've got an ext4 file system on this disk. We know that now. So we'll do an fsck.ext4, and then we'll do dash dash help just to see what our options are. It says there's the automatic repair won't ask you any questions, it'll just try to repair. Uh, dash in to make no changes to the file system. Dash y to assume yes. Dash c to check for bad blocks and then and then add them to the bad block list. Dash f force checking even if the file system is marked clean. Dash v be verbose, use alternate super block. Um, dash j for an external journal location and so on. So we'll do an fsck.ext4 and then we'll do a dash f to force it because this should probably be marked clean already. Actually, you know what we'll do? We'll just do dash in for don't do anything and then we'll do sdg, yeah, slash sdg. So it tells me that the superblock could not be read or does not describe a valid ext434 file system. Okay, that's interesting. So let's try the same thing on slash dev slash sdg1. And then sure enough, it says, okay, so e2fsck, it's clean. It has 11 out of 244-800 files. Uh, it's using 33670 out of so many blocks. Okay, great. So it's marked clean, so it's not doing anything. So then we'll do a dash f to force this process. And then let's do a check for, um, what was it, check for bad blocks, dash C. Uh, yeah, we'll go with that. So slash dev slash sdg1. And okay, so it's checking for bad blocks. That's going to take a little while. It's not not forever. It's only a four gigabyte little hard drive. But we'll, we'll let that run. I'm going to press pause so I can drink coffee in the meantime. Okay, it's back. And it's uh, it came back with some information for me. So for instance, it says checking for bad blocks, read-only test, done. And it says updating bad block inode. Pass one, checking inodes, blocks, and sizes. Check two, checking directory structure, connectivity, reference counts, group summary information. File system was modified. And that's what it tells me. So presumably, if that had been a, a an errant file system, it would now be conformant. It would be it would be fixed. It would be checked and repaired. Uh, I have no reason to believe that there was anything wrong with that file system, so I, I don't think that I did actually anything of use there. But that's more or less how you would use that tool. Now, very frequently the file system check is run when you boot a computer. When you when you reboot or, or when you're booting up, it, it, it runs FSCK to make sure that everything is is in order and all the bytes are in the right place. Now, if something fails such that the such that, for instance, FSCK cannot be run on a disk during boot because the partition upon which FSCK exists cannot be mounted, then you may have to run FSCK yourself on a drive by booting maybe to a live boot CD or or to a thumb drive, whatever. Porteus, for instance, at porteus.org. And then you could run FSCK on a on a disk without it being booted, and that would be. Uh, I mean, typically, if you're going to run it on a on on your boot drive, that is going that's you're either going to let it happen while it's booting, such that it hasn't been mounted yet, and so on, or you're going to boot off of some other 
off of a different media and run it against that disk because you 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 would not fsck a drive that is in you in in active use that's driving your computer at that moment you you would not be able to do that it would tell you this disk is mounted it is in use you cannot do this so you wouldn't do that but it's probably run for you when you're booting and if it can't run when it's booting there's probably a major problem and you probably need to fix it yourself luckily it's not that scary to fix a a borked or, or a semi-borked drive. I mean, it can be scary to fix... I mean, if your drive has died, died, then it can be very scary. In fact, I, that just just fairly recently happened to me. I think I even said that on the show. Like, a, a drive really, really died on my computer. But and, and I was... I think I was saying how pleased I was that it was such a fast recovery time. It was just reinstalling Slackware, running a script to get all the stuff from Slack builds onto it, and then r-syncing my home directory back... And it was done. Like, took maybe less than an afternoon. It was just so fast. But anyway, I, I, I'm getting distracted here. So the, the point is that the, the drive, if it's just a matter of, well, the, you know, the, the plug got pulled before everything could sort of get settled back onto the drive in the right place, um, and for, let's imagine for some reason that FSCK couldn't be run because that was one of the things that got scrambled or something, then it's it's not hard to to run that from, for instance, if you boot off of a Porteous thumb drive, Porteous.org, boot off of that, and then you, you've got your computer on, but the hard drives are not mounted or active, you can point, you can just run FSCK off of Porteous, like, there's nothing specific to FSEK, right? It's, it's an application that knows what file systems are supposed to be like. So you can run it, uh, you know, set a separate version of FSEK against a file system. It's fine. You, you're totally allowed to do that. So you run FSEK on the, the internal drive, which might be slash dev slash sdb1 or something, and point it at that, and it runs its little check and makes its changes. And then in theory, you should be able to just reboot. Now, in some cases, you've got something... Some, some setup on that drive that, that makes FSEK maybe not be able to, to, to figure out where the file system is on that drive. So, for instance, maybe your hard drive is encrypted, or maybe it, yeah, like encrypted with LVM or something. Well, then you might have to de- unencrypt, you know, decrypt the drive using the LVM sort of tool set, or the crypt setup tool set, really. Uh, decrypt that drive, and then once that's mounted into the dev the the mapper for the LVM, then you just run the FSCK on on that map. So that may happen at some point, but don't panic. It's just it's a matter of looking up the different steps to get that drive recognized by your current system, such that you can run a FSCK against the appropriate partition. Because as you saw, when I attempted to run FSCK against just slash dev slash SDG, SDG it, it came back and told me, hey, this super block doesn't make any sense to me. There's, there can be no file system on this on this drive. Well, actually, there was, and that's when I, if you'll recall, I, I ran it against dev SDG1, and it worked perfectly as expected. I think that's it. So luckily, in that, in that way, we have gotten through one, two, three different things because I'm not going to cover FSCK CramFS and FSCK Minix separate from FSCK. I mean, it's all pretty much the same thing. If I go to FSCK.CramFS, it says it is a FSCK compressed ROM file system 
it's used to check the CRAMFS file system. So again, it would be the same the same process for FSEK would be for CRAMFS. You know I'm 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 doing this so that we can say that we've looked at everything. I I that's the only reason I'm I'm continuing to speak here. I should have just said, like I said, we've covered FSEK, but now I I can't I can't say that. So FSEK Minix check consistency of Minix file systems. Minix file systems are the file systems that predate Linux entirely. Linux was was built partly because Linus Torvalds learned from a, a, a test, a, a sort of educational-only operating system called Minix, and 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 this file system checker checks drives for Minix. I, I do not have any Minix file system drives. I've never used Minix or a file system mint for Minix, so I don't know anything about it. But there you go. That's the FSCK. So now we've gotten through all three FSCKs in the SBIN folder from util Linux. The next one is FSFreeze, and we'll get to that probably next time, or at least the next episode in which I talk about util Linux. Because time's up for this one. The, the music's playing. That means I have to go. Thanks for listening. I will talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to the GNU World Order OG cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at Klaatu at member.fsf.org. That's Klaatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. of this earth appears.